0: Well, peace be with you. Amen. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas. And as always, it's a joy to be gathered with you all to worship the Lord together. And It's an honor to come up into the pulpit this morning and open God's Word as well. Well, the year was 1931. Clive Staples Lewis was 32 years old. And after spending his whole early adult life as a proud atheist, he submitted his life to Jesus Christ. You all likely know him as C.S. Lewis, one of the most popular Christian writers of all time with his Chronicles of Narnia series as well as many uh, popular works on Christian apologetics. But his journey was not without its major doubts, angers, and fears. And Lewis confessed that among his central fears and hesitations with Christianity was the prospect of losing the control and authority that he had over his own life. And in his book, Surprised by Joy, he writes about his, this tension in his life before becoming a Christian. He says, But of course, what mattered most of all was my deep seated hatred of authority, my monstrous individualism, my lawlessness. No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me a transcendental interferer. If its picture were true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost depth of one soul, nay, there least of all, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted, some area, no matter how small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and my business only. So Lewis here describes this natural tendency in all of us to resist anyone or anything that tries to take a place of authority over us. This tendency, of course, stems from mankind's fall into sin in Genesis 3, desiring to be like God, Adam and Eve, believe the serpent's lie and rebelled against God's authority to eat the forbidden fruit, plunging all of humanity into a fallen, sinful reality. Inherent to the fallen, sinful nature of man is this instinct to resist any authority that interferes with what we've decided is best for our lives and tries to tell us how to live, what to do, think, or believe. And it's not something that we need to be taught. You can see this starting at a very early age. Parents, when your young child is sitting at their high chair eating dinner, and they start to hold food or a spoonful of food out over the floor, and you look at them very sternly and say, don't you drop that, what do they typically do? They drop it. They look you right back in the eyes, and they drop it, often with a smile on their face. You see, church, one of the most difficult things for us to do from infancy through adulthood is to relinquish all authority over our lives, submit it to someone else, And much of this is due to us seeing authority like C.S. Lewis did before his conversion as too restrictive and forbidding. Or we're hesitant and protective when it comes to any kind of authority over us because we've been under the kind of authority that is oppressive and harmful. Whatever it is, surrendering, surrendering our authority of our lives over to someone else is a seemingly impossible task for most of us. Yet Jesus comes to us, as what C.S. Lewis called a transcendental interferer, demanding all of us. The complete surrendering of all authority over to Him over our hearts, our minds, and our wills. Now does Jesus have that kind of authority? And if He does, what's the appropriate response to it? These are the questions and themes that continue to come out as we work our way through Mark's Gospel. Mark is detailing the ongoing conflict of authority between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day all throughout his gospel account. And this conflict picks back up sharply in our passage this morning. So if you would, please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 33 this morning. And when you get there, would you please stand with me as we read from God's Word together? Let's hear these words with reverence and joy as the inspired, inerrant, and authoritative words of God. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we give you thanks for your precious word to us this morning. Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth that you're teaching us in this passage, and stir in our hearts by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit to respond in joyful obedience and submission to what you're calling us. We pray all of this to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you remember back with me to May, before Pastor Garrison went on his sabbatical, he started us in chapter 11 of Mark, where we see the beginning of Holy Week, or Passion Week, the week leading up to Jesus' death, on the cross and his resurrection. Jesus entered into Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey to cheers of Hosanna, save us O Lord, fulfilling multiple prophecies about the coming Messiah. Then last Sunday Dr. Reisner led us through the day after where Jesus curses the fig tree then enters back into Jerusalem. He comes into the temple courts, he drives out the money changers for making the temple a place of commerce profiting off the selling of animals for sacrifice. Now our passage this morning moves us into the next day, Tuesday of Holy Week, as Jesus makes his way back into Jerusalem and into the temple courts. And what we see is kind of a, a showdown of authority. In one corner, you have the religious leaders of Israel. In the other corner, Jesus of Nazareth. And as we work through our text this morning, we're going to see that um, the divine authority of Jesus calls a recognition, and glad-hearted submission. And we're going to see this big idea come out as we look closely at this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, and we'll examine that conflict in three parts, the divine authority disputed, the divine authority declared, and the divine authority declined. But first, look with me at the divine authority disputed. Mark writes in verse 27, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. So, Jesus and the disciples, they enter back into Jerusalem, and Jesus is doing what he is accustomed to doing preaching and teaching. In Matthew's account, he writes that the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. And it was typical in that time for rabbis to teach as they were walking in the temple courts, and others would follow around them to listen to their teaching. So as Jesus is walking in the outer courts, teaching all those who are following him, it's at that moment that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders approach him and interrupt his teaching. The chief priests, scribes, and the elders were the three groups that made up the Sanhedrin, which was essentially the supreme court of ancient Israel. They held all the authority over all religious matters in Israel at the time. And since the Sanhedrin consisted of 71 members, this group in our passage is likely just smaller delegations sent directly from the Sanhedrin with the express intention of confronting Jesus about what he's just done. So they approached Jesus while he's teaching in the temple courts, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? So the questions that these religious leaders ask Jesus right off the bat make it obvious to us that the authority of Jesus is a top concern of the Sanhedrin. And that these things and, this, and their questions is certainly referring to what Jesus just did in driving out the money changers from the temple the day before. He put an end to a very rewarding venture for them as they profited off the selling of animals for sacrifice in the temple. But remember, the display of Jesus' authority has been a major theme of Mark's gospel up to this point. At the very beginning of the book, Mark notes the people's reaction to Jesus' teaching in the synagogue in chapter 1. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. You see, when the scribes would teach the Torah, they would always have to reference another source in their teaching. But Jesus, when Jesus would preach and, preach and teach the gospel, he didn't need to reference another source. He would simply declare the truth. The Anglican scholar Leon Morris put it this way, the rabbis spoke from authority, Jesus with authority. Thus says the Lord, as typical of the Old Testament, but Jesus' characteristic expression is truly, truly, I say to you. The difference is significant. Jesus appealed to no other authority as he spoke to men the deep things of God. Jesus didn't need to reference a source for his teaching to have power and authority. He's the source and can speak in a way that displayed that. But besides his authoritative teaching all throughout Mark, Jesus Jesus has been demonstrating his authority over the created order in amazing ways. He displays his authority by healing diseases and casting out demons in Mark 1. He not only shows his authority to heal the lame and forgive sins in Mark 2, but outright claims this authority when, before he heals the paralytic, he says, But that you may know, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he displays his authority over the elements in calming the storm in Mark 4. But the response of the disciples to this event says it all. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus was saying and doing things that no one has ever heard or seen. And his teaching and miracles have been making waves all over Galilee and Judea, but the mass is coming from all over just to hear him, be, hear him teach or be touched by him. So Jesus was becoming a viral sensation, and he was doing so without the help of YouTube or TikTok or whatever the kids are using today. So, so with the popularity of Jesus spreading far and wide like this, it, it's simply not possible for the religious leaders to be pleading ignorance here. So we have to be careful in how we hear the questions that these leaders. Are asking. They were not coming from a place of real curiosity, and they were not interested in having a genuine conversation with Jesus about his authority. Their aim with these questions was to entrap and destroy Jesus. Let's just recall how Mark describes their reaction to Jesus driving out the money changers back in verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. These religious leaders were threatened by the authority that Jesus had been displaying. They were filled with jealousy and envy at the amount of attention and respect Jesus was getting and with the following that he was amassing. This kind of attention and authority is what the leaders craved. After all, they were the ones with the credentials. They went to the right schools. They were part of the right families. They were assigned and appointed to these honored positions in the Sanhedrin. They'd done everything the right way to get to the place of authority that they were in. But then here comes Jesus, a homeless carpenter from Nazareth, teaching with such authority, forgiving people's sins, performing miracles, then really throwing down the gauntlet by putting an end to their lucrative racket of selling sacrificial animals. He did not have the authority and the credentials that they had, so he had to be stopped. So they set out to trap him by asking what they thought were clever questions designed to draw out an answer that would condemn him. We see an example of this often in our culture today, especially when it comes to the hyper-partisan politics of our country. Journalists and reporters will often ask very pointed questions to a politician that they don't like. It's designed to draw out an answer that will make them look appalling and dangerous. So the opposing media or politicians, they're looking for that one soundbite or a quote from Twitter that they can use to hurt their opponent or get them canceled. But these religious leaders, they were wanting far more than to see Jesus canceled. They wanted to see him dead and buried, and that's exactly what they thought they were going to get by asking these particular questions. See, they would have been very familiar with the Mishnah, the Jewish oral tradition of the day. Which held that any false prophet and he that prophesies in the name of a strange God were to be strangled. So, in asking, by what authority are you doing these things? They're asking Jesus, what gives him the right to do them? And they knew that if Jesus answers by appealing to some false authority, they could sentence him to death. But likewise, by asking, who gave you this authority? They're anticipating Jesus to answer in a way that claims his authority comes directly from God. After all, it's the only explanation for all the amazing things that he's been saying and doing. And as the Jewish leader Nicodemus admits in John 3, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But in spite of this, they wanted him out of the way and to stop undermining their authority And they knew that if he claims his authority comes directly from God, they would have him on the charge of blasphemy. They could sentence him to death. So thinking they have Jesus backed into some corner with their questions, these leaders have to be feeling pretty good about themselves at this point. That is, until Jesus responds. Look with me next at the divine authority declared. Jesus responds to the delegation's questions in verses 29 and 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So just when they think they've got Jesus right where they want him, he responds in the most brilliant way. Jesus answers their questions with a counter question and turns their challenge for him back on them. And when we read Jesus' response here, it's it's easy for us to uh, mistake what he's doing here for some sort of diversionary tactic, trying to evade their questions. But Jesus isn't acting like some politician or lawyer trying to evade a question by shining the spotlight somewhere else. He's not backed into a corner or threatened in any way by their questions. In fact, he knows exactly what they're attempting to do and is prepared for it with this response. It was a common practice in the rabbi debates of the time to answer a question by posing a counter-question. We actually see Jesus use this strategy quite a bit when he's um, responding to the hostility of the hard-hearted religious leaders of his day. So it's important that we see that by responding in this way, Jesus isn't evading their questions, but in fact, he's directly answering their questions, giving them clear insight into the source of his authority. Jesus is forcing the leaders to consider the legitimacy of John the Baptist's ministry. Did the authority of John's ministry come from God, or was it from the world? Jesus doesn't invoke any great rabbinic schools, the temple, the Torah. He keeps it very simple for them, from heaven or from man. And of course, the answer for John the Baptist's ministry would be the same for Jesus' ministry. The reason that it would be the same answer is that the whole purpose of John's ministry was to prepare the way for the ministry of Jesus. We see this clearly stated back in the first chapter of Mark when John the Baptist is proclaiming the coming Christ. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, John was simply a forerunner and a messenger, preparing the way of the Lord, as Isaiah's prophecy foretold. So, of course, if his ministry had the authority of God behind it, and he was testifying to Jesus as the coming Messiah, then the authority of Jesus was certainly far above any other human that has ever lived. But with Jesus alluding to the baptism of John, we also have to remember the event of Jesus' baptism by John in Mark 1 and the amazing things that happened there. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So when Jesus asks the delegation about the baptism of John, he's pointing them straight back to the event that would directly answer their questions. An event where God the Son's ministry would begin. His ministry to seek and save the lost by being perfectly obedient to the law, going to the cross to take on the punishment for all sin, then being raised from the dead so all believe in him would be made alive. So in pointing the leaders back to John's ministry, Jesus knew that he'd be forcing them to take a public stance on John the Baptist and in turn a stance on him. He was taking the trap that they tried to set for him, turning it back on them. So if they wanted to get the answer that would lead to Jesus' condemnation, they'd have to answer his question and discredit themselves. In chess we call this a fork where no matter what move you make, you're going to lose a piece. And no matter which way they answered, it would be damaging to what they cared about the most, themselves. And they reveal their hearts and their response in the last few verses of our passage. So, look with me lastly at the divine authority decline. In verses 31 through 33, we see the final exchange of this confrontation. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered, Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus' counter-question silences these leaders, stops them in their tracks. It puts them such in between a rock and a hard place that they have to talk it over with each other before they answer. They know that this is game, set, and match for Jesus. And now they're just trying to find a way to backpedal out of it in a way that will allow them to preserve some of their reputation and status. So they start discussing how they'll answer with each other. Well, if we say John's baptism was from heaven, then we'll be asked why we didn't believe him in the things that he prophesied about Jesus. These men were too hard-hearted to admit that John's ministry was from God because then they'd have to admit and submit to Jesus as the one mightier than John. They were too blind with pride to acknowledge the divine authority of the Messiah over them. So this answer was not an option. So they move on to option two. Shall we say from man? I really like how the New Living Translation puts this. Do we dare say it was merely human? And the answer to that was absolutely not. Because it's right here in verse 32 that we get a glimpse into one of the main factors behind the leader's decision making. Besides their hard hearts towards Jesus' authority, they were afraid of the people. If they answered from heaven, they could lose the authority and credibility that they cared so much about. But if they answered from man, they could end up losing not only their credibility, but their lives. They would, of course, like to choose this answer, but the crowds around them all believed that John the Baptist was a true prophet of God. So if they claim he was a fraud and his whole ministry was a hoax... Luke's gospel explains that they were afraid the people would turn violent and stone them to death. So this answer was most definitely not an option either. So how do they end up answering? Jesus only gave them two options in this deal. So if they really want to get Jesus to respond to their questions and trap him, they'll have to choose one of those two answers, except they don't. Recognizing that they're the ones now in a trap, they opt for a cowardly third option, attempting to save face and retreat from the confrontation. In the beginning of verse 30, 33, we see their response. We don't know. And many of you may be able to relate with using this tactic when you were a kid, or maybe your kids have used this tactic on you. I remember many times when I was a kid uh, getting in trouble, playing with a friend for breaking something or whatever it was at the time. Uh, when my parents would find out and ask, what happened? How did this get broken? We had to find an answer that would allow us to slip out with the least amount of punishment. If my, if my friend broke it and I blamed it on him, I'd be tattling on him and he'd get punished. And if I broke it and I took the blame, I'd get punished. So we had to come up with some clever response, one that would delay our punishment as long as possible. We don't know. That's what the religious leaders are doing here with Jesus. They're scared of losing their credibility with the people. And of course, they want to preserve their own lives, so they plead ignorance. But of course, in doing so, they embarrass themselves because how could the highest religious authorities of the day not know whether John's baptism was from heaven or from man? It's because these men were like those who Jesus refers to in Mark 4, as those outside the kingdom who see but do not perceive, and hear but do not understand. Jesus gives them one question to reveal their hearts, and they attempt to delay judgment by not answering. Therefore, they refuse to submit themselves under the authority of the Lord of the universe. So Jesus refuses to answer their questions at the end of verse 33. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Even though he doesn't answer the Sanhedrin's questions here directly in this confrontation, we have the amazing gift of having all of God's inspired word. We know that Jesus does make sharp declarations of his divine authority elsewhere in Scripture. In John 5, Jesus says to the Jews, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Likewise, in Matthew 28, as Jesus is speaking to His disciples, giving them the great commission, He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, church, the question isn't whether Jesus has the authority or not. He has it, and he has all of it. No one else who's ever walked the face of the earth has had such authority. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians one twenty one, Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Theologian Abraham Kuiper puts it this way, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He is God, the Son, the uncreated one, and he's been sent by the Father and given authority over all things. In any and any in a position of authority, all powers, politicians, pastors, parents, We're under him and only have authority because of him. We remember Jesus' response to Pontius Pilate when he claims the authority to free Jesus or crucify him. Jesus says to him in John 19, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So all authority in heaven and on earth is in submission to his authority, And we can be encouraged by that because all who misuse their authority for their own gain, harming others with it, will answer to him. Every knee will bow to him in his perfect justice, and every tongue will confess that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. So church, the question is not whether Jesus has the authority or not. The question that Jesus is really asking both to the religious leaders in our passage this morning and to us is are you willing to recognize my authority and submit yourselves to me? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You're struggling with this. Maybe you see Christianity as repressive and restricting as C.S. Lewis once did with a God that just interferes in your life. You've heard these claims of who Jesus is this morning, and I want to encourage you to consider that rather than being one who interferes in your life, Jesus is the one who truly gives life. As Lord of all, Jesus is the one who reigns supreme over all creation, and he could have used that authority to exercise it in any way that he wanted. But instead, he uses it to die for us, to free us from bondage to sin and death, to give us life. You may be familiar with John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The verses immediately following are so powerful and important. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he because has he not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So when we were slaves to sin and Satan, Jesus left his kingdom to become a man, the suffering servant, and to carry out perfect obedience on our behalf, even obedience to the point of death on a cross. Then three days later, he rose from the dead displaying his ultimate authority over sin, Satan, and death. And when we turn from our sin and put our faith in Christ, he brings us out from under the authority of sin and death and gives us life by placing us under his kind and loving authority. Those submitted to Jesus are not as those imprisoned and under the authority of some harsh prison warden awaiting the death penalty. But those submitted to Jesus are rather as those under a humble king who steps in, takes their punishment, frees them from the prison, and then welcomes them into the abundance of his kingdom. If you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Submit your life into his loving care by turning from your sin and placing your faith in him for forgiveness. For those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, We claim to believe these truths about Jesus. We're tempted to look down on the religious leaders from our passage, but how often do we resist Jesus' authority just like them? We claim to follow Jesus as the sovereign king of our lives, but I just want to challenge us and ask us to prayerfully consider this morning. What areas of our lives are we not submitting to the divine authority of Jesus? What areas of our lives do we have a death grip on clinging to control and trying to prevent interference from God? Are we submitting to the Lord with trust and obedience when it comes to our families, our finances, our marriages, and our careers? Do we submit what we look at on our computers to Jesus or what we say when we're not at church? Are we trusting in His authority over heaven and earth as we engage in the Great Commission? Trusting that the gospel that bears His name contains the power to call the lost out of darkness and into his marvelous light? Are we genuinely trusting and resting in the authority of Jesus to forgive all our sin? Or are we still striving and stressing over being good enough or doing enough to be those worthy of saving? Brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to consider the kindness and goodness of the God that we submit our lives to. We can fully and freely submit all things to Jesus as the Lord of our lives. And we can do so with glad hearts because he's the good shepherd who has laid his life down for his sheep. And he has come so that we may have life and have it abundantly. So when we come to the end of our lives or when the Lord Jesus returns to take us home, we won't be clinging to control over earthly things. But we will turn all of our attention to him like Thomas did, full of worship and joy, and say, my Lord and my God. Because church, we're not submitting our lives to an intrusive interferer, but a delightful deliverer. Jesus is not a taskmaster who's cracking the whip, but a humble, forgiving king who covers us with his righteousness. He has the authority to forgive the sins of his people and he does so by grace. We simply receive that gift by faith, recognizing his authority and submitting our lives with glad hearts to our kind and humble Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an infinite blessing it is to be made alive in Christ, and brought into the loving care of your kingdom as sons and daughters. We thank you that you have rescued us from being under the authority of sin and death and have brought us under the kind and loving authority of Christ, your son. We ask that you continue to work in our hearts as we gladly surrender all things in our lives into his loving care. Fill us with joy and worship as we experience the freedom of being under his rule and reign as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And fill us with anticipation, Lord, for the day when we will be with you face to face as you reign over the perfected creation and the new heavens and the new earth. We pray all of this to you in the name of our precious Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.